This is the podcast for RUF at Wake Forest. RUF exists for the convinced and the unconvinced, the lost and the found, the burned and the bored, the cynical and the spiritual. Whoever you are and whatever your story, RUF exists for you. For more information, check out our Instagram at RUF Wake Forest. Now, here's today's teaching. Well, welcome to RUF. If this is your first time here, really glad to have you here. Um, I am John Bourgeois. I'm the campus minister with RUF, and so it's my job to be here as a pastor for y'all while you're walking through college. I think I got that set up. Um, And like Peter said, uh, we really do want this to be a place that is open for you wherever you are. Um, If you are... I can't fix the mic. We're going to do this. Um, If you are a committed Christian, we're glad you're here. If you're a committed skeptic, we're glad you're here. If you're somewhere in between and you're trying to figure out who you are and what you believe and what you want your life to be about, um, we're glad you're here because um, we believe in RUF that Jesus actually has the answers to those questions and um, that the most satisfying answers to these deep questions that we have about ourselves and our identity and our purpose and our belonging um, are actually found in a relationship with Jesus Christ. And so we're glad you're here to ex- at least explore that with us. Um, so 16 years ago, this week, I was starting my senior year at Tulane University in New Orleans. And I arrived on the Thursday before class started and um, arrived a couple days early. My, we, we'd get there early to do with my fraternity brothers to do some work in the fraternity house and then do some work. Like we'd put paint on the wall. Um, and then uh, I went away to, uh, to the beach for a couple of days um, before class started. And on Saturday, we got news that there was a Category 4 hurricane forming in the Gulf and that their evacuation order in New Orleans was imminent. And this forced me and millions of others into a point of crisis. A crisis. Here's what I mean when I say crisis. Um, Because of the news of this hurricane's imminent arrival, I had a decision to make. And it was a potentially life or death decision. And I remember being wishy-washy about it. Like, should I ride the storm out in the city? We'd had a hurricane threat every fall of, that's what happens when you go to school in New Orleans, had a hurricane threat every fall. And we got a week off from school every fall of my time. And I was like, this is just going to be like that, isn't it? So I'd was, wasn't sure if I was going to leave or not. Is it really going to be that bad? Is it actually going to hit us? But eventually I made the decision to leave. And so I drove back to New Orleans, packed my stuff into my truck, drove two hours west to a friend's house to ride out the storm. And then Sunday night, Hurricane Katrina ripped through the city and absolutely ravished New Orleans. And I share that story with you this, tonight because the text that we're going to read is about a crisis. Not the crisis of a hurricane, but something much more powerful and life-altering. And it's the crisis of the true king of creation announcing the arrival of his kingdom. When Jesus came on the scene, he came with an announcement. Um, in Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, it says this. It says, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. This word gospel means good news. It was a pronouncement of the good news of the king. And this is what he said. Jesus stepped onto the scene. He said, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And when Mark uses this phrase, the time is fulfilled, he uses this, this really interesting Greek word, uh, for time, it's this word 
kairos. And there's two words in the Greek language for time. There's chronos and kairos. Chronos is the word that we use when we say time. It's like moment by moment, the passage of time. But kairos is a different word, and it refers to a particular moment in time that is so significant that it defines everything that's going to come after it. It's, it's sort of like our word historic. We only call an event historic if it has such a significance that it actually shapes the events that follow after it. So when Jesus said that the time is fulfilled, he's saying that an an incredibly significant time in human history has arrived. The kingdom of God has arrived in his person. Did you catch how he said we should respond? He says, repent and believe in the gospel. So why does his arrival signal that we should repent? Because the arrival of the king, this moment of his arrival, is a profound crisis. And this word crisis is a transliteration of the Greek word crisis. Same word, except it starts with a K. Crisis is a K. And this word in Greek means judgment. So when the kingdom of God breaks into the world in the person of Jesus, it brought the most profound crisis that humanity has ever faced. And our lives are filled with crises, um, with real significant crises. And the coming of Jesus, is, it's bigger than Katrina. It's more powerful than Hurricane Ida. It's more cataclysmic than COVID, more life-altering, more life-altering than the U.S. troops leaving Afghanistan, more catastrophic than any of the crises here at Wake Forest. That profound crisis was Jesus's judgment on the world and his call to enter into his kingdom, enter into the kingdom of light and truth, the kingdom of justice and love, or to be found on the outside of that kingdom for all eternity. So as we look at our passage tonight, I want us to see it through this lens, this lens that Jesus himself gives us, the crisis of the coming king and the call to repent and believe. And y'all, I know this sounds crazy to some of you, but here's what I hope happens as you listen tonight. I hope that you hear that the crisis that Jesus brings and his call to repentance is actually an invitation to life, that he is calling you, yes, even you tonight, he's calling you to leave death and to enter into life. So we're going to read uh, tonight from Mark 1, um, verses 16 through 34. And for those of you who are taking notes, um, my outline for tonight is this. We're going to see three things. We're going to see the crisis of being called, the crisis of being taught, and the crisis of being healed. This is God's word for us tonight. It is trustworthy and true, and he gives it to us in love. Passing along the Sea of Galilee, Jesus saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea. For they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending the nets. And immediately he called them and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. And they went into Capernaum and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. And immediately there was in the synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice came out of him. 
And they were all amazed. So they questioned among themselves saying, what is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. And at once or immediately his fame spread throughout everywhere, all the surrounding region of Galilee. And immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever and immediately they told him about her. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up. And the fever left her, and she began to serve them. And that evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed. And the whole city was gathered together at the door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So first, the crisis of being called. So Jesus approaches Andrew and Peter as they're fishing He calls them to follow him, and he tells them that he will make them fishers of men. And their response is to drop their nets and follow him. And then Jesus approaches James and John as they're mending their nets, and Jesus calls them to follow him, and they drop their nets and follow him. So why is this a crisis? Well, in the first century, rabbis didn't pick disciples. Disciples picked their rabbis. So it's like college today. You pick your professors. That's how you do it. You sign up for classes. When you get your slot, you pick the professors that you want. The professors don't pick you. I mean, that would be weird, wouldn't it? If you arrived on campus and you just kind of milled about, like you went to the gym and you ate and you looked at your phones and you talked to one another and you played spike ball and then like a young professor walks up to you and makes eye contact and says, follow me. Like, weird. It's weird. It would have been just as weird then. That's what's going on here. And look how they respond. Right? What's the word that Mark uses? Immediately. Immediately they drop their nets And they follow him. And I think it's only when you know the sort of life these men had and the total, totally unknown future that Jesus was inviting them into that you understand just how earth shattering this is. Like they leave everything they've known, all their security, their family, and family was huge in this culture. They drop their nets and they follow Jesus. And in principle, Jesus is calling you to the very same thing to drop your nets. It may not involve such a dramatic change in our everyday lives, but Christ's call and his reign as king in our lives means that from the moment that he calls us, our lives are no longer at our own disposal. I mean, look at James and John, their family, their occupation, even their profitable business partnership, like they're doing well for themselves. They have hired servants who are helping them with their fishing business. All of it must now be at the disposal of Jesus. This is true for you too. When Jesus calls you, it is a call for the entirety of your life to belong to him. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was a theologian and pastor in Germany in the 20th century and actually martyred by the Nazis for uh, attempting an assassination on Hitler. And he once said, when reflecting on Jesus' call, he said, when Christ calls a man, he calls him to come and die. That's what this call is. To let him do with your life what he will. To open your hands with your relationships, your future job, your current major, your schedule, your body, your mind, your identity. Jesus is inviting you into a totally unknown future where he is your king. And it's also worth noting that Jesus does not give something to them to hold on to in response. Like they don't drop their nets and then are given cool RUF stickers, or they like don't drop their nets or get like a cool cross necklace or a cool tattoo in Greek that says fisher of men on their bicep. 
which a guy I knew in college had one of those. I mean, this is why it's a crisis. This is why it's a crisis. I mean, think about what these nets represented for these men. It was their identity, right? This, this told them who they were. They were fishermen. It, it, it communicated to them their purpose. This is what their lives were for. Their belonging, it signified to them the, the community that they were a part of. I think it's important for us to reflect on this. Like, what are the things for you, for me, where we, that we look to outside of Jesus to answer these questions? Where do you look? What do you cling to to give you your identity, to tell you who you are, or to give you your purpose, to tell you what your life is for, or to, to make sense of where you belong? What are the, the things that you hold on to other than Jesus to answer those questions? Jesus calls us like he calls them to drop the nets and trust him with everything. Like the old hymn says, nothing in my hands I bring, only to thy cross I cling. And when Jesus calls you, it's from nets to nothing, but life in the kingdom of God with Jesus as the king is not a life of nothing. It's the exact opposite. So if you're thinking, well, what, John, like, question might be, what have you got to lose? And Jesus says, like, what do you have to lose dropping your nets following him? Jesus says, everything. He says, whoever loses his life for my sake gains it, but whoever clings to his life will lose it. Because what he's doing here with the disciples and what he, he does with us is this, is this is ultimately about our souls. That there's this dynamic at work here that when you cling to your own life, when you cling to your nets, you're asking the question, what, do I, what, what can I do to make myself successful? What can I do to win? What can I do to improve my image? How can I build my identity so it's secure? And when you do this, you enter into this, this calculus that makes everything a cost-benefit wager. And then you're not always, then, you're, then after that, you're always making decisions based on whether or not it's going to help you. And Jesus says that this arithmetic will ultimately kill you. It will be a slow death of choosing yourself first and that that actually destroys your soul. But Jesus says, if for the sake of Jesus and his gospel, you lose your life, you willingly drop those nets, you leave the hired servants and entrust him with those things, then you'll find life. Jesus is saying, I only get one place in your life first. And if you won't have me first, you don't get me at all. This is why this is a crisis. And then in verse 21, we're told that they went into Capernaum together and immediately entered a synagogue on the Sabbath. Just real quick, all of these immediately's, like I'm sure you've picked up on this. So um, Mark's gospel is understood to be the gospel of the apostle Peter. And if you know anything about the apostle Peter, he's incredibly impulsive. And so you can just imagine that as he's telling Mark what happened, it's just this excitement of how things happened. Jesus moved at such a pace that things happened immediately, immediately, immediately. And so we're told immediately after this, they enter into the synagogue on the Sabbath. And we enter into the crisis of being taught. So on the Sabbath, this would have been a Saturday morning. Jesus goes with his friends to the local synagogue in Capernaum, just a couple, maybe a hundred yards offshore. And they go into the service and Jesus, because he's a, a rabbi, he's invited to teach. And then the congregation immediately recognizes that there's something completely different about him. Everyone who was there that morning talked about his authority. But while he, that while he spoke, something different was happening. He had an authority that was unlike the other people they'd heard teach. And while he's speaking, this man stands up and yells at him from the congregation. 
I don't know if you've ever been in a class or in a church where this has happened. Um, I haven't. I've heard stories about this happening. It's incredibly disruptive, as you can imagine. Someone stood up right now and just started yelling at me. Like, we all know what is going on. This is deeply disorienting. Room gets very tense. And Mark tells us that this man who stood up and yelled was demon-possessed. He was terrifying. He's growling at... I should have done voices when I read the scripture. He's growling at Jesus. What do you want to do with us? And these are fighting words. Like, he is moving towards Jesus for conflict and confrontation. Um, Last night, Mary Clark and I watched Iron Man 2. We were just going to watch 20 minutes. Y'all know that never works. Um, So we watched the whole thing. And... um, so as the movie develops, I'm not going to give the whole thing away, but as the movie develops, you've got Tony Stark doing his thing and claiming that he has secured world peace through the technology of his suit. Um, but there's this bad guy, Ivan Vanko, whose dad worked with Stark's dad, and then his dad was deported to Russian Siberia. So Ivan has this vendetta against Stark, right? And he's seething with rage. And then he builds this suit, just like the Iron Man suit, in order to have this confrontation with Tony Stark because he wants to destroy him. And there's this scene towards the beginning of the movie where Vanko walks out onto the racetrack of the Monte Carlo Grand Prix. And he's got his clothes are definitely too big. There's something on under his shirt. And as he walks, his shirt begins to catch fire and then disintegrates off. And you see that he's got this like homemade Iron Man suit and these two electric whips and he just starts tearing up the um the formula one cars that are driving by um and he has one purpose like he wants to get close to tony stark in order to destroy him to confront him and to kill him now i want you to imagine that happening in church can you imagine what's going through these people's heads like what is jesus going to do a demon possessed man has stood up called jesus out and said are you here to destroy me like how should jesus handle this And then the the demon-possessed man says, I know who you are. You are the son of God. Like what he's doing here is he is exposing Jesus's identity. Like the demon is hoping that he can back Jesus into a corner so that he can continue to possess this like poor man, um, continue to possess his poor life. But his life. But the difference between Ivan Vanko and this demon is that the demon is terrified of Jesus because he knows that the presence of Jesus is his certain end. Because wherever the king sets up his kingdom, he destroys the kingdom of darkness. And so what does Jesus do? He talks to the demon like an annoying lapdog and says, be silenced, come out of him, and the demon obeys. And then we have the scene where the man like starts shaking and shrieking and the demon leaves him. And now we have a crisis, not just for the demon, but for everyone in the room. And that crisis is a crisis of authority of receiving Jesus's authority. It's a crisis of being taught. Verse 22 says that when Jesus taught in that synagogue, he taught as one with authority and the people were astonished. And the word astonished here means that they were filled with amazement to the point of being overwhelmed. They're so incredibly amazed at what he's doing. I mean, this is like first century Greek. His mind was, their minds were blown. Like it's so intense. They are overwhelmed by what he's saying. And Jesus's teaching leads to obedience. Obedience of the, of the demon and obedience of all who call him king. And this shows us that following Jesus looks like having him as your supreme authority, which is a call to drop your pride. It's a call to drop your pride. Here's what I mean. 
Um, some of you heard me, have heard me tell this story before. Uh, I've got a friend named Luke Miedema, and he had a friend who one time thought that his whole body was covered in fur. So this friend, um, who's also a pastor, uh, was given some medication from his doctor that was told that there was a side effect that may include hallucination. And one night he woke up in the middle of the night and he looked down and realized that he was covered in fur. So he did what all people would do. He goes in the bathroom, turns in the shower, and starts shaving his fur off. And so that wakes up his wife. And his wife says, what are you doing, honey? And he's like, shaving my fur. Like, what do you expect? And she's like, you don't have any fur. And he's like, oh, I definitely do have fur. And so they have this conversation. And um, she's like, honey, you have no fur. You look exactly the same way you do when you go to sleep. Come, please come to bed. And so at this point, this man has a crisis of authority. And an invitation or a call from his wife to dry, drop, his, drop his pride. He has a choice to make. Every sensory input in his body, his touch, his vision, are all telling him that he's, he's covered in hair. It's obviously true to him, except that the voice that he has grown to trust over years of marriage, a voice that he knows does not lie, a voice that he knew had his best interest in mind, was telling him the opposite. So which would he believe? Which is the most rational choice? Well, his wife convinced him that despite all external evidence, he was not covered in hair. He needed to go to bed and he needed to call his doctor in the morning and get new meds. Listening to a voice that has true authority a voice you have grown to trust even when every external indication, every, but, every bit of evidence and input points the other way is what it looks like to follow Jesus. I mean, already in the first week of being here, y'all have faced crises of authority, situations where you have had to make a choice. Will I drop my pride and obey Jesus or will I do what I think is best? I just want to name three of these that you may have encountered and to see how this plays out, just these three crises of authority. So first, forgiveness. This is when your heart and your God say different things. When God says that forgiving your roommate, again, for the very same thing that they know drives you crazy, when God says that that's better than holding a grudge, that you are to forgive as Christ forgave you, even when you don't want to, you have a crisis of authority. Your pride says, I don't deserve this, I'm going to do what I want, what feels good for me. Dropping your pride and being taught by Jesus looks like forgiving others as he has forgiven you. Second crisis, crisis of authority is a crisis of rest. That's when your schedule and your God say different things. When God says that it's good to work six days and rest one, regardless of how many extracurriculars you're in, or how many hours you're taking, or how thin you're already stressed yourself this semester because you don't believe that it's good that God made you a limited human. Pride says, I can do it all and I'll rest when I'm dead. Dropping your pride and being taught by Jesus looks like building strong walls around rest and entering into the rest that Jesus has already won for you. Isaiah 30, 15 says, In repentance and rest you will be saved, and quietness and in trust shall be your strength. Third, crisis of authority, hooking up. When your body and your God say different things. When God tells you that not hooking up with that gorgeous girl or boy who is willing and ready is actually the best thing for you, that not giving your body to them is the path of life and goodness when every cell in your body says, but God, it feels like the opposite. You have a crisis of authority. Dropping your pride, being taught by Jesus, looks like looking to the one who gave up his body fully on the cross for your sake, 
to win you back to himself, who has filled you with his Holy Spirit because he longs to be near to you as the only one who can satisfy that ache of your soul. And when you're in a crisis of authority, which you will be in college and the rest of your life, you must ask this question, is God actually good? That's the question before you. Is God actually good? Do I actually believe that Jesus is the good king who the Bible says he is? And as you learn to surrender to your king, as you let him teach you, as you drop your pride and learn to surrender to Jesus, your life then becomes a sign to the world that you are living in the kingdom of God. Your life becomes a sign, a signpost that points others to God and his goodness. Your personal humility is a sign that you're on the mission of God and is one of the primary ways that you're called to worship your King Jesus. And so from the synagogue, the action immediately moves to Simon and Andrew's house where they find Simon's mother-in-law sick in bed. And we come to our third crisis, the crisis of being healed. This miraculous healing that Jesus does here is an act of wonderful compassion. And like all of his miracles, it's a clue to who Jesus is and his purpose in coming. I mean, look at what happens to Simon's mother-in-law. She's sick, she's debilitated. Her life, for however long, had become useless. And what does Jesus do? He comes to her and he heals her and restores her to who she was meant to be, a whole and healthy woman. And once healed, she begins to serve Jesus and his disciples. Here's what going, is what's going on here. Jesus restores God's order and purpose in her life. And in doing so, he gives us this miniature picture of what's on offer when you accept Jesus' healing. And then after Sunday, so after the Sabbath was over, we see that the whole town crowds around his door, the diseased and the distressed and the demon-possessed, to be healed by him. So why is being healed a crisis? I name it a crisis. Why is it a crisis? I mean, it seems like that would be the opposite, right? That being sick is a crisis and being healed is the alleviation of a crisis. Being healed is a crisis because it is the invitation for you to drop your despair. And despair and its twin sister shame feel so much safer and familiar than entering into the healing of Jesus. Uh, there's this wonderful book um, called Unwanted. And the subtext, subtitle is How Sexual Brokenness Reveals Our Way to Healing, written by this man named Jay Stringer. And in his book, he says this. He says, our sexual brokenness is the geography of God's arrival. Our sexual brokenness is the geography of God's arrival. This is a profound statement. Jesus invites us to drop our despair and to enter into his healing for all parts of our lives, including our sexuality. See, our despair, our shame, it convinces us that we are unwanted. Whether it's because of something that we've done or something that's been done to us, whether it's a physical injury or a psychological one, a moral injury or a sexual one, our shame, because of these wounds, convinces us that we're unwanted and then we pursue behavior that confirms that shame. Right? We just enter back into the same thing and say, see, this is who I am. This is how bad I am, right? We have this cycle that we continue to enter into. This is how despair, despair and shame work. We feel shame and then we do something to confirm the feeling. We feel unwanted because of how our bodies look and then we return to the patterns of behavior that further hurt us. We feel unwanted because of what's been done to us sexually and then we pursue the same sorts of behavior that confirm that feeling. When I do something that feels bad, that confirms to me that I am bad. And then we get trapped in this cycle. 
And Jesus enters into the cycles of shame and despair in our lives with this crisis of healing. And he calls us to drop our despair and to enter into his healing. Friends, the, the heartaches of our, um, of our lives and the schemes of evil attempt to convince us that hope, real hope of healing is only a daydream. But in the arrival of Jesus, the hope of healing is real for you. So how is it that Jesus heals us? Um, recently, I read an interview about, I read about an interview with Andy Casagrande, who is the cameraman for Discovery Channel's Shark Week. And he was asked, crazy job. And he was asked um, what in the world he was supposed to do when a great, great white shark is swimming directly at him. And he answers, I thought this is fascinating, that you have to do something counterintuitive. You have to swim directly at the shark with the camera. Um, and somehow, he says, this action seems to trigger, trigger a defense mechanism in the shark. And the sharks, their response is like, wait a minute, everything always swims away from me. Here's something swimming towards me. And they kind of freak out and they turn away. And he says, the reality is, is that if you don't act like prey, they won't treat you like prey. You know, just in case you're in a shark tank. Um, <laughs> follow that one away. All right, here's why I tell that story. God's remedy to our shame and despair um, is, almost, is so simple that it's almost comical. So when, when the Israelites, when God rescued his people out of slavery in Egypt, they're in slavery for 430 years, and God raised up Moses to deliver his people who didn't know who they were because the only thing they knew about themselves is that they were slaves, um, rescued them out of slavery, brought them into the wilderness, began to tell them who they were, that they were God's beloved people. And while in the wilderness, they were overcome with despair. And they refused to believe that God was good and God who was, who was, that God was who he said he was. And so God sent um, serpents amongst his people. And these serpents began to bite his people and they were poisonous and kill his people. And so Moses cries out before God and says, God, how, like, stop. How do, we, how do we get rid of these serpents? And God's response, um, God's response is he tells them to take, to make a snake out of bronze and to put it on top of a pole and then to have the poisoned Israelites just look at it. And when they look at it, they'll be healed. Right? It's so simple, it's almost comical. In order to be healed, the Israelites just had to look at the very thing that was killing them. The Gospel of John picks up this story um, in John chapter 3, and Jesus, he's talking to a Pharisee who comes to him at night, and he, he shares this story. And what he says, the way he, he, uh, he fulfills it, is he says that he is the one, Jesus is the one who gets placed on the top of the torture stick. And people must look at him in order to be saved. Here's what I'm saying. We are healed to the degree in which we can turn to face and name what is killing us. And friends, Jesus became all of it for you on the cross. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says that God made him who knew no sin to become sin for you, to become sin for you, the thing that is killing you, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Friends, Jesus is the true, true king. He is a crisis. 
And he extends to you an invitation to drop your nets and to drop your pride and to drop your despair. He calls you to follow him and to submit to his authority and to enter into his healing. Friends, this is, this is Jesus. He is the true king and this is his invitation. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you um, for your word to us tonight. Lord, I pray for my friends. And Lord, um, as we struggle to make sense of uh, this crisis of you entering into the world as the conquering king, Lord, would you lift up in our hearts the beauty of the work that you have done for us on our behalf. On our behalf. Um, Lord, help us to make sense of our own lives in light of, of you and, and your love. Um, Lord, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.